So I was, um, I was uh, reading about this anthropologist named uh, David Graeber, I, I believe his name is. But he wrote this book called um, B.S. Jobs. The real title is the full thing. I'll, I'll use the initials B.S. And uh, he, devi- he defines a, a B.S. job as a job which even the person doing the job can't really justify the existence of, but they feel like they have to pretend it's really important. And so that's kind of the BS element. And so uh, there's like a bunch of categories of this kind of job. So he's not talking about like bad jobs necessarily or like really difficult jobs. He's talking about kind of jobs that aren't necessary. So he wouldn't say like, sanitation workers or teacher, teachers or nurses or, like, these kinds of, you know, medical professionals. Like, he wouldn't say these kinds of things are BS jobs because, obviously, if those were to go away, then kind of society would just, like, collapse. But um, he's talking about um, – so he, talk, he says, like, the growing armies of consultants, bankers, tax advisors, managers, and others who earn their money in strategic trans-sector peer-to-peer meetings to brainstorm the value add on co-creation in the network society. He's basically talking about people who, uh, their job is, so he defines a bunch of them, like he calls them flunkies. Flunkies exist solely to justify a manager's position. So he talks a lot about like these middle management positions, and a lot of them don't really need to exist, but he says there are some people who have to have jobs so that other people can have jobs above them. Uh, Goons who are people who exist solely because others are doing it. So if another company has this specific type of person, like a marketing person, then you need a marketing person, so you hire that. Uh, Duct tapers, these are people who clean up the mess of inefficient systems. So because people can't do their job well, you need other people who help people just do their job. Uh, Box tapers, taskmasters, people who create meaningless work for other meaningless employees to do. So he talks about all these kinds of jobs. And so people started thinking, like, is this really true? Like, are there a bunch of people who feel like their job isn't that meaningful? And so they did a survey in 2013 of 12,000 professionals by Harvard Business Review. And half of these people said their job, they felt that their job had no meaning and significance. And an equal number of people felt that they could not relate to their company's mission. So they either didn't know it, they didn't care about it, or they didn't relate to it. Uh, There was another poll done with 230,000 employees in 142 countries. So this was more of a global thing. And out of that survey, only 13% of workers said that they actually liked their job. So that's 87% of people who didn't like their job. Uh, They had one poll in, in, in Britain that said as many as 37 people felt that their job was, quote-unquote, utterly useless. Now, why is this? You know, why do so many people feel like their job is not contributing something meaningful to, like, society or the world, or it's not giving them a certain sense of meaning? Now, I think it's not so much because the jobs themselves are meaningless, I think, probably all of those jobs, including the ones that, you know, David Graeber describes as kind of meaningless. I think they all add value. Um, I just think it's difficult to find ultimate meaning in any job. 
But that's where people are looking for it. So people are looking for something to help define them or to, you know, self-actualize so that they can reach the, the core of who they are, their true potential, uh, their identity through a job. And I feel like putting that kind of pressure on any job is ultimately going to make it seem less meaningful than it could possibly be, than it is capable of being to us. Now, God offers us, you know, God offers his people a different kind of experience than that, right? He offers something to be part of his people, to be part of his church, to be part of his cause that is supposed to be very meaningful and very powerful. This idea of how people feel about their jobs is not supposed to be how the church is either to be or to feel the work of the church both is and is meant to feel meaningful and powerful. And the question for us today is similar. It was the same question as last week. Um, what makes the church powerful? How can we lean into the powerful entity that the church is supposed to be? And if you weren't here last week, we went over the first part of Ephesians 4, and we talked about unity. Right? What makes the church powerful? One thing is unity. Uh, one, that it powerfully demonstrates the glory of God and that to step into it, we have to have this kind of make every effort commitment to guard it. Today we're going to be talking, we're going to continue in that passage, but we're going to be talking about uh, another aspect, another thing that makes the church powerful. What makes the church powerful part two. Also, if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Dear God. Uh, which, in which we've been kind of looking through some personal questions of faith, some theological distinctives. Last couple weeks, we've been going over uh, ecclesiology, uh, kind of the theology of the church, how it's supposed to meant, how it's supposed to be and meant to operate. And um, we're in, so we're in. What makes the church powerful? Part two, partly because I couldn't think of a better title. And um, so we're in a series within a series now, Inception style. Um, give you the main point, okay, for today, just like last week we talked about unity. Uh, what makes the church powerful? If I could sum it up in one word, I would just say ownership. Ownership. If I could have one exhortation for today, I would say take ownership of the ministry of the gospel in the church. Take ownership of the ministry of the gospel in the church. Now, what we'll talk about is what exactly do I mean by that and why it is so important that that is the way that each of us thinks in the church. So that's what we're going to look at. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in um, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. This is God's word, and it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to give you the point kind of just of this section here, just for clarity's sake. Uh, Here's my synthesis of Paul's point here. Uh, When each member of the church takes ownership of the ministry of the gospel, the church grows in both unity and maturity. When each member of the church takes ownership of the ministry of the gospel, what I'll also refer to as gospel demonstration, the church grows in both unity and maturity. So just to break down kind of Paul's understanding. Now remember last week in uh, the first part of Ephesians, he talked about unity, right? And remember how he gave that basis of the Trinity. And he said, look at the Trinity you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he kind of worked out that trinity of trinities. He was, there was a threefold description of each person of the trinity. And he was saying, this is upon which, this is kind of the foundation upon which you should build your unity. And when you do that, it demonstrates the, the unity of God, right, and, and the power of God. And we looked at John 17. There's another kind of excerpt. There's, there's another uh, truth there where Jesus is praying to the Father. He's saying, let them be one as I am in you and you are in me. Let them see that, then they'll believe that you sent me. Right? So the gospel is powerful when the church demonstrates that unity. Now he goes, he goes down, and then in verse 7, he actually says, which you know, we didn't look at, but for verse 7 he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So if you're opening your Bible, you can just look at that there. But he says, there's this unity, and then he says, But grace was given to each person According to the measure of Christ's gifts. So Jesus himself gives different gifts to each person in the body. So he says there's this unity, but then there's also that each of you has like kind of a different gift. Then down here in verse 11, he explains how this is meant to work in the church. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now, this obviously doesn't include all the gifts in the church. This only includes kind of the speaking or the teaching gifts, right? There's the apostles for whom, you know, the ones who wrote the Bible, right, the New Testament. Then there's prophets who speak, you know, the truth of God, evangelists, obviously, who are bringing people into the church. There's pastors and teachers. These are ones who provide biblical guidance and biblical teaching according to the word. And he's saying, so that's kind of the job of those people. So for example, me, that's my job as your pastor to come in and teach you the Bible, to equip you with the word of God so you can understand the word of God, so you can apply the word of God, so that you can be guided and led by the word of God. Two, verse 12, equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So, Who's the saints? That's, that's everybody. That's everybody in the church. If you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Christ, if you've given him your faith you know, for salvation, you want to follow him, then the way that Paul refers to these people in the church, he calls them saints, holy ones, people who are set apart because of what Christ has done. You have a, a special... Ability, you have a special gift, a talent, a skill, a disposition to see a certain thing, to understand a certain thing a certain way, to bring your unique perspective. And he says, you are to be equipped to do the work of ministry. So the church is designed then to be dependent on the word 
with prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who present and equip through the word so that each member, each saint, takes ownership of the ministry of the gospel for the good of the church and its mission. That's, that's what he's saying. Right? And then he says, okay, well, what happens here until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ? Now he's painting this picture of uh, two things. One is a unified body, a unified people. And then there is also a mature body of mature people, right? To mature manhood, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Again, this idea of maturity, mature manhood versus children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So what just, when, something, when somebody says something to you, when there's some false teaching, some kind of anti-gospel teaching, whether that is like false teaching from a cult or a, another religion or from the world, we're able to withstand that because we have both unity and maturity. If you are a part of the church, the love and service that you contribute to the body is needed and valuable and important and a calling. The church grows in unity and maturity when each of its members takes up that calling, takes up that challenge. I was, um, I was, watching, this, I was watching this TED Talk by a man named, um, I can't pronounce his last name, so I'm just gonna, his name's Tom. Right? So this guy named Tom, he comes and uh, he talked about something called the Marshmallow Challenge. Right, so it was a, this guy is like a design expert or a professor. And uh, so it was a design challenge in which teams of four had 18 minutes to build the tallest freestanding structure. So they had to build a, a tall structure using um, 20 sticks of spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and a marshmallow. Right, and the marshmallow had to be on top. So they were using like spaghetti sticks, right, like string, string and tape, and a marshmallow, and the marshmallow had to go on top. So... Uh, he said, the way that most groups, so he's been doing this for a long time. He's done it with tons of groups. And he said he would observe the groups and he would see that certain groups would perform better and some, certain groups would perform worse. And so how most every group would operate is that they would kind of orient themselves. So they're just grouped up randomly, right? So they'd orient themselves. They'd make a plan, right? Then they would start building. And then at the end, he would say they would either have a ta-da moment or they would have an uh-oh moment, Right? Because at the end, they would put the marshmallow on the top, and either they would be like, ta-da, here's our structure, look how tall it is, or they would be like, they would put it on, and then like, uh-oh, and it would all collapse, right? So he said, among the worst groups were uh, recent graduates of business school, right? So the average height for all structures was 20 inches. Uh, the average height for recent business school grads was about 10 inches, so they were half of the average. And then he would say, among the best groups, among the best groups were recent graduates of kindergarten. In fact, here's, so here's a chart, right? So this is the average right here, 20. Business school, 10. Lawyers, 15, about here, right? Kindergartners, over here, above 25. Above average, above all average adults, kindergartners. 
right here, CEOs below kindergartners. And then this is CEOs. If you add an executive admin to the CEO team, they go up like crazy to here. And then this one is uh, architects and engineers. Obviously, they're the highest. Thank goodness they're the highest, right? Because if they weren't the highest, if kindergartners could also outperform the architects and engineers, we'd have like a big problem, right, in society. And so you, you look at it and you're like, wait, I don't understand. Like, how can that happen? Right? And he said, well, he would observe certain things. For example, business students who, who tend to do the worst in this, uh, they would search for the right kind of formula and then they would try to execute it. Right? Because that's kind of the way that they're taught. Right? So they would search and they would think about it and they would plan and they would say, no, they, they would the whole time, they would spend the whole time finding the right way to do it. And then at the end, they put the marshmallow on top, but then if it didn't work, then it's too late. You only have 18 minutes, you run out of time, and they end up, like, not really building something good. They said also another problem is there would be, like, politics <laughs> within this group, right? It's only, like, a four-person group in 18 minutes. It seems like a very simple, you know, kind of direct task, and yet within the group, people would be jockeying for power. People would get their feelings hurt, you know, if their idea wasn't used, you know, if some other guy. so people are, they're, they're kind of all struggling to just perform the task. Now, you look at kindergartners, they have none of those problems. They just think very directly, here's our job. Our job is to make this tower and put the marshmallow on top. So they would just immediately start designing and building and working together. There's no politics, you know, unless you're really, I don't know, a socially developed kindergartner, I guess. Maybe you'd want to be the leader of this, you know, marshmallow ink you know, a tower company or something, but generally nobody really cares. So they're all just kind of working together. And at every stage, they keep the marshmallow on top because they, they know that that's, that's, the, that's the job, that's the objective. So they, whereas business grads and lawyers and CEOs, uh, while far more educated and capable and intelligent, fail to live up to the sum of their parts, Kindergartners make the most of their synergy because each kid contributes and everyone is focused on the goal. If you want the church to grow in unity and maturity and you want to be a part of a church that is growing in both unity and maturity in the gospel, you must take ownership of the ministry of the church the ministry of that gospel. So let me, let me tell you this, because I think it's something many of us need to hear. Your service as a member of the church and your growth as a part of the church, those two things are inextricably linked. You cannot grow as a member of the church without serving the church. Now, if you, if you joined a basketball team and you thought, I don't really want to be a part of the team. I just want to be friends with everyone on the team. Right? Like, so you're in high school, right? There's a basketball team. There's a group of guys. And you're like, okay, a group of guys, group of girls, whatever, right? So you join in and you're like, well, I don't, I don't really, like, I'm not interested in basketball, but I just want to be friends with everybody here. The problem is half of what the team does would not be relevant to you. Right? All the times that they're in practice, they're doing film sessions, right? they're working out, 
They're playing games even. They're trying to win games. That kind of stuff you don't care about. Right? You're not thinking about that. All you're thinking about is the other stuff like hanging out before or after the game or, you know, wanting to get close, like to build relationships. Right? So if you're trying to be best friends with somebody on the team and you're trying to be part of the team, but he's like trying to get better at basketball, then, then you're not really going to be in line, right? You're not really going to grow as a part of that team. And sometimes I feel like there are many people in the church who want to be a part of the team, who want to feel like they're a part of the team, who want to feel like they're contributing. They are part of this group, part of this whole. But that aren't that interested in winning basketball games. That's the purpose of the the church, though, not to win basketball games, but to make disciples, to demonstrate the gospel. If, If love and service and... Many times, oftentimes, in a self-sacrificial way, if that's not a part of what you want to be, then you're going to have a hard time connecting only relationally with people who are part of the church. Now, the other way doesn't work either. If you think, I only want to win basketball games, I don't want relationships with my teammates, you know, you probably won't be a good teammate, No one's going to pass you the ball. They're not going to want the ball from you. You probably won't get a lot of playing time. And you're not going to feel like you're part of the team either. So both are necessary. For the church to move forward, some of us are, you know, and some of us, we we lean probably one way or the other. Some of us are all about just hanging out and having fun and having authentic relationships. But we're not trying to do anything in the world. We're not trying to accomplish anything. We don't want God to change us, nor do we want God to use us to make any kind of significant change in the world. And some of us are on the other side. We're just like, why aren't people reading the Bible more and praying and, you know, going on missions? Like, that's all we're about. And we're like, who cares about these relationships? We can't be just one or the other. The church isn't designed to function that way. Some of you need to hear whatever service you offer to the church. It's valuable. It is. Whatever you do, it sometimes doesn't feel like that, right? Because we are looking at the microcosm of what we're doing and not the macro of what God's doing in the world. And, you know, just putting something down or filling something in, you know, on a piece of paper or a computer or, you know, Greeting someone somewhere, it, sometimes it doesn't feel like it is the most valuable thing. But, in fact, it is incredibly. That's the way God has designed the church to work, so that each person plays a part in that, a role in that. And it only works when everyone's doing it. And some of us need to hear, maybe, maybe all of us need to hear both of these things, but... Step into your calling for the church with a purpose. Take ownership of that for the good of the church and the advancement of the gospel. Not not begrudgingly or hesitantly, but believe that God has a use for it. He is using it. He is doing it. And step into it. Like when people step into their calling and ministry for the good of the church— that probably, you know, it's, it's one of the things that most excites me, honestly. Like when somebody tells me, like, hey, I'm interested in doing this, 
like this kind of ministry or can I, can I do this? Can I step into this? Whether it's like an official thing or an unofficial thing, you know, whether it's like through the church or whether it's something that they've just been praying about, thinking about. Like whenever I hear those kinds of things, like I get really excited about it. I don't, I'm not, I'm not very good at uh, conveying excitement. So you might not see it on my face, but inside I'm like, I'm like thrilled and I'll pray about it. I'll probably go cry, you know, when I'm praying later to God, I'll be like, God, thank you so much. You know, even though, again, when you tell me, I'll just be like, oh, that's good. Thank you. Sorry, that's just, it's my very Asian parents. They made me like that. And let me just, real quick, okay, before we move on from this, it's not about skills. It's not about, like, your ability, right? It's about love and humility and willingness. Because let me just remind you, the kindergartners outperformed like almost everybody on this list, except for the people that were specifically trained, you know, to do this thing. Kindergartners. That's the, the, the this is like, this is like, you know, I, I love when principles from scripture are like evident in the world, right? It's like God saying, man, can you imagine if, just everyone came with a purpose. Just believed, like, I'm a part of this. God has designed you to be a part of his great work in the world. Walk into it, not away from it. And by the way, like a lot of you guys, you're doing that. And thank you for what you do. Thank you for your service to the church. Right? Thank you for giving and praying and for the, the advancement of the God. I mean, we just, you know, the, the Southeast Asia team just came back, right? Like, that's not possible unless you guys do stuff, unless you pray for that, unless you give to that. You know, they're going to do stuff. Like, God is going to work it all out for his own glory. Things are going to happen there. And we can all be a part of that. I really just encourage you um, Take ownership of that. Now, he continues here. So we see, you know, when each member takes ownership of the ministry of the church, of gospel demonstration, the church grows in both unity and maturity. He's going to go on here. Uh, Verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself itself up in love. And I would synthesize this this way. I would say when each member of the church takes ownership of gospel proclamation, speaking the truth in love, gospel proclamation, the church grows in the culture of Christ-likeness. We grow up into him who is the head, who is Christ. Now, when he says, speak the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, so he says, you're not going to be, like, pushed around by every wind of doctrine. Every time you hear something, you're not going to jump to it, right? And you're like, oh, you know, you hear something about interest rates. It's like, oh, I got to buy a house, you know, or I got to invest, you know, I got to do this, or I got to do that. You know, my friend said, you must have three children, so I'll have three kids. You know, I should say, your parents will say that, right? You know, whatever, Just because someone tells you something, you won't be jumping back and forth. Oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. You will be steady on the foundation of the gospel. He says, instead of that, rather speaking the truth in love. So building ourselves up in love, speaking the truth. Now, this doesn't mean basically just like telling the truth, like being honest. 
That's not the, the force of the original language. What it could probably better be translated as is confessing the truth. So like when we do, you know, the Apostles' Creed, that's like confession of our faith. Right? It's more that kind of like you are declaring something, you are proclaiming something that this is true. It conveys more the, the specific sense of accepting the truth of the gospel, you know, speaking it out loud at corporate gatherings of worship, talking about it with fellow believers, upholding it firmly when we discuss it. You know, what's the truth? The truth that Christ came and lived and died and that we go from complete sinners to completely forgiven saints because of his work. That's, that's like the truth that we are supposed to uphold. The truth matters. I was, um, was in my car the other day. I was at Starbucks. So I drive to Starbucks. I was looking up something on my phone. I don't know if you guys ever do this, but I'm like on my phone. You know, before I get out of the car, the AC's blasting, and I'm like checking something. So I'm like on my phone, I'm checking something, and then I'm, I'm kind of getting deep into it. I was like looking up something on the news, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm looking down at my phone, and this, this girl comes by. She like knocks on my window, right? It's like this Asian girl. She looks Japanese, right? She, I open my window. She has like a heavy accent, and she, says, she has a picture that's like, it's like human trafficking, Right, so she looks, she shows me this picture, and she's like, oh, I for, dang, I forgot what the group was called. But like, she says, I'm part of this like group, this ministry, whatever, right? And she's like, can you help? And I'm like, seems weird to me, right? Because she has like this thick accent, and I'm like, why is she doing this? This doesn't seem, you know, so I just want to check it out. So I'm like, do you guys have a website? And she's like, can you just give $20? And I was like, now I know it's weird, right? I was like, do you have a website? Right? And she's like, just $10 will be good, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not giving you money now, right? Like, tell me your website so I can look it up right now. So they tell me the website. I'm like, okay, thank you. Well, I'll check it out. You know, I'm sure there's online giving or whatever. So I check it out. I look at it. And it's actually, so it's like a front, basically. It's like a front charity for the Unification Church. I don't know if you guys know what that is. That's like... Um, Sun Myung Moon, you know, the Moonies, right, from this, this cult from Korea. He's not even, he's, he's already passed away. But, you know, they, 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 like, worship his wife now or something. They used to, like, drink his bath water. There's this really weird cult, okay? And so, and he just, like, mass, he does, like, these mass weddings and all this kind of stuff in a stadium in Korea. Korea has, like, the most cults and the weirdest ones. But, um, you know, like, okay, this is, this is a front. And, you know, the thing is, like, I, I, I thought about her, right, this girl. I mean, she's, like, gone now. But I, like, felt bad for her. Because right? here's this girl. I don't know why she's doing this. Why is she in America? She has, like, heavy accent. She's probably not from here. She's probably been deceived, right, into, like, believing that this person is the Messiah or whatever. And she's going to receive something for doing this. She thinks she's probably raising money for human trafficking. It's not even for that. You know, the money's going somewhere else, basically into the pockets of some upper-level cult leaders. And does it matter that she has no idea, probably, that this is happening? That she is completely deceived? I mean, is it fine because she's happy being deceived? Thinking that she's doing something in the world when, in fact, she's just helping somebody deceive other people? No, I, don't, I don't feel good for her. I don't feel like, well, at least she's happy. No, I feel terrible for her. 
because the truth matters. It matters. Beyond just how you feel about it. Beyond just if you were to be satisfied living a blissfully ignorant life. Do you know that 47% of Christian millennials, Christians, believe that evangelism is morally wrong? So to try to to, to share with someone the gospel, essentially to preach the gospel, because that's what preaching means. It means when I'm up here preaching, I'm not just telling you something. I'm trying to convince you of something that, that is true. So they would say it's wrong to preach the gospel. You could share it. Or you could just talk about it, but not in any kind of way that would make them believe it. They think that is wrong. Satan's most powerful weapons are not guns, and they're not bombs. They're ideas. They are cunning teachings. They are fear-driven beliefs. They are self-centered mentalities. This is what drives, in fact, those people to believe that they can use guns and bombs and think that they are doing good when they are perpetrating the worst kinds of evil. Truth matters. Here are some lies that you need to be aware of. Lie number one. I am most fulfilled through self-expression and personal achievement. I would be most fulfilled if I could express myself fully and achieve my potential. That's a lie. Lie number two. The more things I have, and by things I don't just mean material things, although I would include material things. I would include material things. I would include moments, special moments or experiences. I would include all of that into this category of things. The more things, the more stuff, the more moments, the more special experiences I have, the happier I will be. That's a lie. Here's a third lie I want to address. Sacrifice must always be begrudging. And it can never be freely and joyfully chosen. Now, a lot of us, I mean, I don't know if we know it or not. But we either build our lives on these lies or we are tempted to. Right? Because we are constantly being told these things. Now, here's, here's the truth about those three things I just said. Here's truth number one. God designed you to be most fulfilled when you are committed to a cause that is beyond what you can achieve alone. That's the way he designed you. That's part of why he designed you to exist in community. Not only so that the community could could exist for your self-expression and personal advancement, but so that you could be a part of something that is beyond what you alone can achieve. 
a cause that's bigger than you. That's inherent in every single person, right? Not just Christians. Everyone that God has designed has that desire built into us. Now, of course, to live for God's purpose is the greatest cause we can live for, and he has designed us for that too. Truth number two, Christ died for you. Not so that you could have or experience more things, whether those be material things or eventful things or momentous things, but so that you would appreciate and enjoy the significance of everything you own and every event you attend and every moment of your life. Because what, what God wants for you is not to have the most stuff and to have the most moments, the best moments, and to have the most special experiences. No, what he wants for you is to fully enjoy and appreciate everything that you have, everything that you own, every moment that you live, to be able to give God glory, to, to see the beauty in it. Here's truth number three. So sacrifice doesn't have to be always begrudging. I think, in fact, the opposite. Sacrifice is a sign of powerful freedom. Willing sacrifice is a sign of powerful freedom because Christ freely chose to sacrifice himself, and it was his joy to do so. When each of us takes ownership of the gospel demonstration, the works of ministry, the love and service of the church and the gospel proclamation, to be, to be committed to the truths of the gospel as they apply to each of us, then the church is powerful. I don't care if it's three people or 10 people or 50 people or 1,000 people. Now, what, what we're actually going to do is... Um, you know, we're, gonna, we're actually going to step into uh, one of the most powerful expressions that we have, uh, the sign of who we are as a church and what we proclaim and celebrate. You know, this is communion. It's something we do together as a community, and it is a sign of what has been done for us, the foundation of our faith. Um, you know, the bread is representative of Christ's body, the juice, <laughs> I always feel weird saying juice. You just get wine. But, you know, the juice is representative of um, Christ's blood that was shed. Uh, I'm going to read right now from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And can we just, you know, as we partake of communion today, I would just remind you guys this is for believers. If you're not a believer or you're unsure about your faith, I just would ask you to abstain from this time. 
But for those of us who are believers, um, you know, would we, would we step into it with the notion of, this is kind of my personal challenge to you, like, to take ownership? To say, God, you know, I want to, I want to take ownership of the demonstration of the gospel in the church, the proclamation of the gospel in the church so that the church can be built up. And so I'm actually, I'm going to pray for us and then, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us. And then after that, um, you know, you can go ahead and step to the back and and take a piece of the bread and and a cup. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you have done for us, for the love and the service that you have demonstrated for us, God. Coming, living, dying for us, God, for our sins, that we could be turned from, you know, irredeemable to completely redeemed, God, from from utter sinners to saints, God, um, completely forgiven saints because of your work, Jesus. Um, you know, we want to just celebrate that now as a community, as a church. Uh, we want to step into this time, God, with the right hearts. And we pray, God, that as we do so, would it be a commitment uh, to take ownership of our calling, God, each of us, as a member of your church and your people. We thank you so much, God, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.